Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies, and I'm excited about the movie that we took off the shelf this month. We are talking about Snakes on a Plane. Maybe you don't know about it if you're one of our younger listeners, but if you were around in the mid-2000s and you were plugged into the internet, then you probably remember at least hearing about this movie. It was one of the earliest viral sensations. Just the concept of a movie called Snakes on a Plane with Samuel L. Jackson was enough to get people buzzing. We're going to break down the movie, what makes it so great slash terrible, and I'm super excited because we are also going to talk to one of the creators of the viral trailers that created so much traction and such a sensation for this movie. It's a great discussion about this little moment in time when the internet was really beginning to flex its power as a movie marketing machine. Before we get to that, though, I just want to thank you for watching. If you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, I would love for you to download the podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to get your audio podcasts. And if you're a listener and you want to watch the video version of the show, you can find us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. As with all things that have passed into legend and myth, the origins of Snakes on a Plane are a little mysterious, but there are a couple of different versions that we can play around with. One of them is that the idea originally came from David D'Alessandro, who was an employee at the University of Pittsburgh and read an article in a Nature magazine about World War II cargo pilots that were struggling back then when snakes would sneak into their cargo holds as they were flying different missions around the Pacific and elsewhere during the war. D'Alessandro thought that sounded like an interesting idea and said, well, what if it wasn't just one snake? What if it was a bunch of snakes and they were on a commercial airliner and wrote a script called Venom that he shopped around and that could not be sold to any movie studio whatsoever. Despite this universal rejection in 1999, the script was optioned for production, and D'Alessandro was given a story credit on the final film alongside screenwriters Sebastian Gutierrez and John Heffernan. Interestingly, in a 2016 interview with the LA Times to mark the 10th anniversary of the film, John Heffernan, the co-screenwriter, claims credit himself for the idea, saying he developed it back in 1999 when he was working as a development assistant and thought about doing a movie about people's two greatest fears, fear of flying and fear of snakes. And in this interview, he mentions neither David D'Alessandro nor Sebastian Gutierrez, who has co-screenwriting credit. As with everything in the real-life Rashomon that is Hollywood, the answer lies somewhere in the middle, as explained in the commentary of the film by the movie's producer. It was a pitch that began uh, as an idea. It was based on a script called Venom. Uh, And then the uh, writer John Heffernan and I developed the uh, pitch, and uh, we went out and sold it. And New Line, you know, took it out of turnaround. Director Ronnie Yu, who was known for horror hits in the early to mid-2000s like Bride of Chucky and Freddy vs. Jason, was originally on board to direct the movie. He'd had a great relationship with the star of one of his previous films, Formula 51, Samuel L. Jackson. And because they were such good friends, Jackson found out that there was a project in development called Snakes on a Plane. And based solely on that title, began to lobby to get the part as the lead in the movie. I thought that... um. It was a great idea, but then I heard my friend was directing it, and I emailed him to see if it was true, and he said, yeah, and I said, well, can I be in it? And he's like, really? I was like, yeah, like on a plane, how can I not be in something like that? Ronnie Yu was reportedly fired at some point after Jackson initially showed interest, but he was replaced with a director named David R. Ellis, who, in addition to directing films like Final Destination 2 and Cellular, had worked as the second unit director on a number of movies with Samuel L. Jackson, including Deep Blue Sea from 1999. So Jackson and Ellis still had a very friendly relationship, and Jackson stayed on board as the star of the film. Filming of Snakes on a Plane 
took place in mid-2005, wrapping in September, but despite the fact that its buzzy title had attracted Samuel L. Jackson and an increasing amount of internet attention, it caused some unforeseen problems during the production. We were having problems um, getting some actors to take it seriously, and also some locations, when they heard snakes on a plane, they weren't jumping for joy, like we're making a really good movie. So we changed it to a really uh, great title, Pacific Air 121. Really For the oxygen yeah, channel. Right? Whatever. <laughs> really catchy. The name change from Snakes on a Plane to Pacific Air Flight 121 sparked a couple of things. One of them was a very pissed off star in Samuel L. Jackson, who immediately demanded that the name be changed Back. The first day I arrived, I got there and they were like passing out, you know, new pages and they gave me the script that said Pacific Flight 121. I'm like, what the f is this? And they're like, well, you know, we don't want to give it away. I was like, you exactly want to do that. Yes. That's why I'm here. Yes. I'm not here to do Pacific Flight 121. Yeah. And if that's the name of the movie, I quit. The other thing the name change sparked was backlash on the internet because despite the absence of social media giants like Facebook and Twitter, and sites like YouTube that would pump out viral videos daily, the virality of Snakes on a Plane was mainly due to what was at that time called the blogosphere, a series of not-so-interconnected blogs that were following and tracking the production of the film. Many of the people who devoted so much time to tracking every single step of the development and filming of Snakes on a Plane didn't do so just because they thought it was a funny title and a great moment. They also wanted to become part of the experience. People were seeking out more and more information about snakes on a plane because there really were a lot of people who were interested in it. And a fun goal seemed like to try to get myself invited to the Hollywood premiere. So I said, okay, I'll start a blog. Of course, the name of the movie was changed back to Snakes on a Plane. And I think it's very important to recognize right up front the importance of Samuel L. Jackson to the tone and the tenor around this film. Because from the very beginning, probably more so than anybody else involved with the movie, Samuel L. Jackson knew exactly what kind of movie he was making. It's a Saturday afternoon movie that you go to and have fun with. Nobody's trying to win the Academy Award here. We're just trying to entertain some people and have some fun. Snakes on a Plane was originally shot and edited to be a PG-13 movie. But soon after the first test screening of the film, the head of New Line, Bob Shea, realized that the audience's desire for this film would not be quenched by such a restrictive rating. Sam and I always wanted an R-rated film and knew that that's, I mean, you gotta go for it. It's called Snakes on a Plane. And I get a call from Bob Shea. And he goes, David, this has to be an R-rated film. He said, what do you need to make it that? And I said, give me five days, give me Sam for a day. And you got it. The crew and some of the cast reconvened for five days in March of 2006 to shoot material specifically to up the rating to an R. And a lot of the new stuff that was shot was a direct reaction to so much of what was being generated online already as far as parodies, trailers, etc., including what would become the film's most famous line. Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane! Just a slight sidetrack here, in addition to the line itself, which is perfect, you can also find the TV edit of the line, which is equally as perfect. Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday play! And several foreign language dubs, which I'm sure were just as effective as they were here in the United States. Ya estoy harto de estas estúpidas serpientes y de este estúpido avión! 
J'en ai ma claque de ces putains de serpents qui se baladent dans ce putain d'avion. Ich hab langsam die Schnauze voll von diesen beschissenen Schlangen in diesem beschissenen Pissflugzeug. To appreciate snakes on a plane fully, I think we need to re-experience snakes on a plane. So let's run through the events of this film and recap the magic that was this movie. We open in beautiful Hawaii, where a motocross rider named Sean witnesses the brutal murder of an LA prosecutor by notorious gangster Eddie Kim. Woo! Sean is taken into protective custody by FBI agent Neville Flynn who convinces Sean to fly with him to Los Angeles to testify against Kim. Come with us to LA, testify against his ass, put him in jail for life. To throw the mob off their trail, Neville and Sean decide to forego the chartered private plane and instead fly on a red-eye commercial flight from Hawaii to Los Angeles, which brings in the possibility of all kinds of colorful characters like Juliana Margulies, who's a flight attendant on her last trip before quitting to go to law school. Hip-hop artist 3Gs, played by Flex Alexander, along with his entourage, including Kenan Thompson, who at that time was still a cast member on Saturday Night Live. You also have Rachel Blanchard as a Paris Hilton type named Mercedes, who carries her dog around in her purse. David Koechner as the airline pilot determined to open this airline up to sexual harassment litigation. I was hoping you'd be the sky candy on this flight. You're looking especially delicious this evening. I love it when you demean me, Rick. And a variety of other stock characters like Snooty Man. Is there a problem, mister? Oh, gee, what do you think? Woman with Baby, Unaccompanied Minors, Honeymooners, and Horny Couple, one of whom is played by Taylor Kitsch. Eddie Kim, resourceful gangster that he is, finds out that the FBI has pulled a switcheroo and comes up with a brilliant counter plan to the FBI's plan. And it really couldn't be more simple. Stock the cargo hold of this commercial airplane with dozens of rare and incredibly venomous snakes. Then drive those snakes crazy by spraying pheromones all over the airplane that will make them super aggressive. Then unleash all of the snakes on a timer in the hopes that they will A, either bite and kill the star witness that's flying to Los Angeles, or B, cause enough damage to the plane that the plane will crash, killing everybody on board. Of course, this all seems unnecessary for a couple of reasons. Number one, this could not have been the easiest thing, despite what Eddie Kim says. Accidents happen. You think I didn't exhaust every other option? He saw me! And number two, there's probably no way that Sean would have actually made it to the courtroom considering that he tells just about anybody within earshot that he is the star witness against one of the most notorious criminals in the world. Ever heard of Eddie Kim? Who hasn't? <laughs> I'm a witness for the prosecution. So the plane takes off, the snakes are unleashed, and the carnage begins. And the first people in the crosshairs of these snakes is horny couple who have decided to retire to the bathroom and join the Mile High Club. And we get our first glimpse of the inserts that were filmed in order to make this an R-rated movie with a very clear shot of a bare breast getting bitten by one of these deadly snakes. However, to ensure gender equality shortly after that, there's another scene that was picked up later that shows the snake biting the penis of a urinating man. And if you ever wanted to know what pure joy sounds like, listen to Samuel L. Jackson's reaction to watching this scene in the film's commentary. Oh, no! Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah! Get up! I can't wait till the foreign press sees that one. It should also be mentioned that while many of the snakes in this movie are real, even more of them are CGI snakes. And even by 2006 standards, they're not great. 
However, the production team seems very proud of their work in the film's commentary. They're photo real. I mean, I beg the people that are watching this DVD to pick out the real snakes and the CG snakes. So these are CG snakes right there, but they look amazing. How many visual effects shot in total? Uh, 383. So yeah, just shot How many did we originally have in the budget? Under 200. Oh, well, that explains a few things. Here's a little PSA. When you watch a movie and the special effects aren't great, I wouldn't be so quick to blame the special effects artists. Most of them are very talented, highly trained technicians. I would instead look at the producers of these films, who oftentimes ask for a certain amount of shots, then up the number of shots that they require without paying these effects houses any more than they'd already promised to pay, which means you have a bunch of overworked, underpaid artists who really can't say anything because they will then lose that work to another special effects house that the producers will also decide to overwork and underpay. If you want to get just a little bit mad about how the Hollywood system works, look at how a lot of special effects houses are treated because you will see work that producers count on the most but seem to value the least. On board the airplane, the snake carnage just keeps on coming, and eventually, the captain of the aircraft is bitten and killed by one of the venomous snakes, and as if that wasn't bad enough, the snakes also short-circuit the avionics, dropping the oxygen masks and the rest of the snakes into the cabin, leading to my favorite shot in the movie, which is just this guy holding a snake and screaming. It's always struck me that this would also be how Anchorman's Brick Tamland, played by Steve Carell, would react to the same situation. After Samuel L. Jackson body slams one snake, a flight attendant then grabs another snake and sticks it in the microwave. And if you look very closely, this microwave has a snake button. You know, like how your microwave has a popcorn button? And this is where I think the actual biggest shortcoming of the movie is. If they had treated the whole movie with this kind of just insanity, with this recognition that there is nothing in this film to be taken seriously, then I think it would have done a little bit better. There are a lot of half measures going on in this movie. The whole first 30 minutes is way too serious for a film of this degree. If they just listened to people like Samuel L. Jackson from the beginning and made this wholly ridiculous, then I think you would have had a true comedy classic for its time. The other important thing to notice is that Samuel L. Jackson doesn't wink at the camera and knows that the more serious he takes this movie, the better it's going to be, which is why you get such great commitment from him. I mean, just listen to these lines. We have to put a barrier between us and the snakes. Eddie Kim somehow managed to fill the plane with poisonous snakes. Now what we need to do is go back in there and find all the dead snakes we can so the doctors on the ground will know what kind of anti-venoms we need. Much like Leslie Nielsen, Samuel L. Jackson realized that the straighter you play it, the funnier it is. That's good news. Snakes on crack. However, one of the actual unintentional laughs in this movie, and it only comes with the passage of time, is this scene where they have to get pictures of all the venomous snakes on board the plane down to the snake expert on the ground who's going to get the antivenom. And they're trying to figure out how to do it when the Paris Hilton stand-in introduces them to a wonderful magic device. Why don't we just take a picture? Oh, sure. Let's yeah. drop it off a jiffy photo where we land, Einstein. Ever heard of email, dickwad? All we need is a digital camera and a computer. Yeah. Or this. It's got both. Things continue to deteriorate, and as one astute off-camera passenger realizes, it's the snakes. What? It's the snakes! So Samuel L. Jackson goes full die-hard mode. First, crawling into the belly of the aircraft to get the air circulating again, while in the process, killing a snake with a spear gun. But things are still very bad, because David Koechner, the only remaining pilot on board, has been killed by a snake, and we get the old... Is there anyone here 
Who knows how to fly a plane? But as it turns out, they're in luck because Keenan Thompson is on board and he's addicted to a flight simulator game on PlayStation. That's basically the same thing, right? I mean, I got over 2,000 hours. So it is time to land the plane, but the cockpit is still infested with snakes. And, well, I'll let Samuel L. Jackson take it from here. Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane! Sam Jackson shoots out the windows of the plane, depressurizing the cabin, which does suck out all the snakes, but also blows a huge hole in the side of the plane. I'd also like to note that Sean, the star witness who's the reason for all of this happening, is not kept in protective custody by Sam Jackson in this scene, but instead left to fend for himself and potentially get sucked out of the hole of this plane anyway, which would completely negate everything that happened. You would think that an FBI agent who was tasked with protecting this person would, you know, protect them from things like being sucked out of a huge hole in the side of the plane, but uh, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Together, Samuel L. Jackson and Keenan land the plane, but we're still in for one last scare, as Sean, who I don't think has a line in the last 30 minutes of this film, gets one last scare as a snake jumps out from nowhere and bites him right in the chest. <laughs> Okay, so yes, Sean is wearing a bulletproof vest, which means neither the snake bite nor the bullets did him any harm. But wouldn't you love to see the version of this movie where Samuel L. Jackson did just shoot him right at the end of the movie and then turns right into the camera and looks down the barrel and just says, well, better luck next time. Again, there are versions of this film that I think could have been better even than what we got. The movie ends with Sean and Neville surfing in Hawaii, presumably after putting Kim away for life, and then we get the end credits, including a full music video. Remember when they did that in movies? And that's a brief tour of the amusement park ride that is Snakes on a Plane. And as I mentioned before, during the production of the film and leading up to its release, there was a practical farm industry of people putting together fake trailers and blog posts, etc., getting internet buzz going on about the movie. Well, after the break, I'm going to talk to Chris Rowan, who was one of the minds behind one of the most popular viral Snakes on a Plane audio trailers. We'll talk about his experience and this little snapshot of pop culture history in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Shudder, the streaming service that brings you the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals, ranging from classic movies to brand new films, streaming uncut and commercial-free right to your favorite streaming device. Shudder is packed with titles that you're not going to find anywhere else. These are just some of the exclusives that are coming to the service this month in February. You've got A Nightmare Wakes, After Midnight, The Joe Bob Valentine Special, Shook, The Dark and the Wicked, and the second half of A Discovery of Witches. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense year-round for $5.99 a month or $56.99 for the entire year. And you will find out very quickly why people are calling Shudder the Netflix for horror because it is the largest and fastest-growing hand-curated selection of supernatural and dangerous entertainment out there. Once you subscribe to Shudder, you will have unlimited ad-free access of everything Shudder has to offer to all of your favorite streaming devices, including iPad, iPhone, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Chromecast, Roku, Android devices, you name it, Shudder streaming right there. 
The great thing about Shudder is if you're a horror aficionado, they've got everything you want. If you're more of a newer person to the horror genre, then they also have so much that you're looking for because not only can I catch up on all the classics that I've missed, there's great curated lists that can catch me up on the must-sees, but it's great for things like Schmodown Research. You know, it was just announced that there's a Nicolas Cage slice on the wheel. Well, guess what? You've got some of the best horror movies starring Nicolas Cage, including Vampire's Kiss, Color Out of Space, and Mandy. You can find all of those on Shudder. La Llorona, which is a Golden Globe-nominated film for Best International Feature, that is on Shudder. People have been telling me to watch this movie called One Cut of the Dead, and I've been meaning to get to it for so long, but it's always been, well, where can I find it? Well, you know where I can find it? I can find it on Shudder, because they have features from America, international features, classics, new features, you name it. If it's in the world of horror, the supernatural, thrillers, it's there on Shudder. Get started today streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Color Out of Space, Host, The Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit creep show TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free, that's right, free, for 30 whole days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code MOVIES. That's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, promo code MOVIES to try it free for 30 days. And I'd like to thank Shudder for sponsoring the show. You say you want to eat better, but let's be honest, a lot of the stuff out there doesn't taste very good, it doesn't fill those cravings, and it doesn't fill you up. Well, this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but have less than one gram of sugar. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're perfect for anybody that's following the keto lifestyle, but they're also perfect for somebody who just wants to eat better, is looking for a healthier snack. It's so easy to just grab something salty, something sugary, real junk food if I want to eat something fast. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars are a satisfying, fast snack for me that allows me to get back to work and not have to stop down or hit that sugar wall. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have a soft and chewy texture and they come in great flavors like coconut cocoa chip, maple pecan, and peanut butter. And I've said this before about other stuff from Monk Pack, but you cannot substitute a great peanut butter snack for me. That's what I love about these Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars. I can have that peanut butter retreat and I don't have to feel bad about it because I'm not eating a lot of sugar and I'm not eating a lot of calories. They're great for a quick breakfast, something to grab between Zoom calls, or a late-night treat. And they are gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. Plus, you can shop online, which means you can avoid another trip to the store by having Monk Pack delivered right to your door. Try it for yourself, and you'll see. And we have a special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product that it is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product you want. Then enter our code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and we'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. 
as we've been talking about, Snakes on a Plane is notable, not just for what it did in theaters, but for the movements that it inspired before it even hit theaters. And I'm very happy to be joined by Chris Rowan, who was one of the minds behind a, a viral trailer in the early days that you could call anything viral for the film that later ended up being very similar to what they would add to the movie. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, no problem. That was a fun to relive that that moment of my life. It was very strange. So take me back to, this is, you know, 2005, 2006. There's this movie coming out. It's called Snakes on a Plane. A lot of people on the internet talking about it. How did you first become aware that this was an actual project that existed? Um, so, I, so I was 19 at the time, right? And we worked at a company called Graphic Audio, and they do dramatized audiobooks. So instead of the narrator, you have the narrator, full cast, sound effects, and, and music, that kind of thing. So it's like a radio drama. And uh, I was part of like the sound design crew, and we were in like this little bullpen, um, and you know, just a couple of twenty-something-year-old guys, and you know how that is, kind of almost locker room, but not quite. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the, uh, Dan Sondak turned to us and, and just pointed out that there was this movie coming out called snakes on a plane with Samuel Jackson. And we just, we started joking about it, um, together. And one of the things that's very powerful and dangerous is when you have a group of 20 somethings with, with really, you know, uh, immature senses of humor and at our fingertips are music, sound effects, professional actors in a recording studio. It's, uh, dangerous things happen. I did not ask for motherfucking things on my motherfucking plane. We went and recorded it in five minutes. I put it together in 10, um, put the music in, put the sound effects in, glued it together and, and we had a good laugh. And then another guy in the bullpen, Matt Webb, he was like, yeah, I'll, uh, let me take it, I'll upload it. And, I was, and we were like, okay. I don't even know where he uploaded it to um, because it was, it was kind of before social media really was what it is today. But next day we came in and Matt was like, dude, a lot of people are listening to this. And we were like, what do you mean? It's like a lot of people are listening to this. And then it was quiet for a little bit, but then we started seeing things like interviews, like people were, were small media outlets were calling for, for like little tidbits and answering little questions. And then it got bigger and bigger as, as things went on. You saw a lot of comments online. When you get this idea that like, oh, this thing that I'm doing is becoming viral. Is it just kind of like, oh, that's neat because it's not, again, it's not like where it's on YouTube and you can go or you can go tweet about it or people are tweeting you about it. It's just this thing that's just kind of happening apart from you, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It, like, I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, I just, I was along for the ride. It was really cool. You know, it was all my friends were talking about. Uh the the little and hearing myself on the radio was really cool, even if it was for like one little snippet. Um, so I didn't know what to do with it. Um, Nathaniel didn't know what to do with it. The rest of us didn't know what to do it. Do with it. My boss's boss, Angie. I, I I'm gonna say she kind of saw the dollar signs in her eyes um, because she. It started becoming a promotional thing for for graphic audio because graphic audio was about as close to a mom and pop shop as you can get without actually being one, at least at the time it was. Um, and they, she gave me this copy of me talking about what I had done and the influence it had. And I'm looking there, I'm reading it. I'm like, this is a little, 
are you sure about this? This is a little uh, self-congratulatory. And she's like, no, 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 read it, read it, read it. Um, and I think that's online somewhere, and it embarrasses the hell out of me. October 2005. It was lunchtime at Graphic Audio Studios. Nathaniel Perry and I, Chris Rowan, were in the booth recording what turned out to be one of the most influential audio skits of all time. The skit is widely seen as one of the main motivators behind the five days of film reshoots that changed the rating of the actual film from PG-13 to R. Graphic audio went to New Line Cinema to try and do the Snakes on a Plane dramatized audiobook adaptation. <laughs> and they were they were looking like, it, it was, I mean, they got a deal, which was really impressive. Um, and uh, they were expecting the novelization to come back and then we would adapt the novelization like we always did. They gave us the script like <laughs> before the movie came out. So like it was encrypted and uh, my father, who was also the director, uh, he had to like go into the back room and it was really hush hush and he was just reading through it and then adapting it. So we, we got to have our own little uh, experience of, of with the movie being able to, to put it into our own production uh, before actually seeing it on the screen. So you did actually produce the audio version of Snakes on a Plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I actually had to go, I didn't have it, <laughs> but um, my dad actually had a copy of it uh, with the graphic audio. It's like two CDs. I think we sold like seven copies or something. <laughs> I, I remember like this, like, hundreds of these on on like a shipping crate like in the in the conference room for like three years before i think we finally threw them out a common thread in your trailer and some of the other things is you take samuel jackson's persona and mm -hmm. you know the swearing and you know and it's it's in yours the whole thing about what you know snakes on the motherfucking plane and stuff mm -hmm. they go back later and they lean into that and they shoot this pickup of Samuel L. Jackson saying that stuff. Do do you remember, like, did you know that they were doing that? Did you see that when you saw the movie and go like, wait, heard like, did we just, did we just inspire reshoots for this movie? I had heard about that. Yeah. And uh, it, it was definitely a, a really cool thing. And um, I, I really enjoyed that, that part of it. Uh, we did, we did get a, like, a screening for it with everybody, uh, everybody in the company, since it had been such a, it, it became such a huge part of our, uh, uh, I did, it was the most famous thing that graphic audio had been a part of at the time. So it, it was a huge deal. So we got to watch it and, you know, we were having fun and, and making fun of it at the same time. And then once he said that line, everybody cheered and clapped and, you know, it was, it was, it was a trip, man. It, it, they're really, Nobody could have predicted that, and and uh, what a ride! What was it like? You know, you have this this big pop, and the movie comes out, and there's a you know a lot of buzz around it. But you know, was there a was there a a legacy, or a, you know, did did Snakes on a Plane change your path in any way? Or could we mentioned before that you know you said like, well, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. But did it did it change it, in any it way? It did, um, and and not so much directly as it did. It changed uh, graphic audio's direction. Um, and of course, I, I worked there for a really long time. But the fact that they worked with New Line Cinema got them to get some work with DC Comics, and then DC Comics got to Marvel, and then uh, Brent Weeks and Brandon Sanderson and a bunch of other people started. Getting, it it let them break through to the the properties that are more mainstream. So it it really helped them a lot. And for me, the Snakes on a Plane, working on the you know. Uh, this uh, version of it, which is two CDs, 
uh, we had twice as much time to make this as as we do with the other books and this is like a third of the length most of their books are like six cds seven cds that kind of thing so um we got to really instead of going through with the sound design and and like focusing in on on uh the the important moments and moving on kind of like if you if you watch anime how they have like cheaper animation for the talky bits and the you know the the really high quality animation for um the action bits we had more time to focus on those little details and cloth rustles and footsteps and and breaths and gestures you know you can hear the the movement of, of things um so it really got me into this uh what the the really focused high quality stuff could be despite the fact that like you, you can't really you know with the way production is now you couldn't afford to put that much effort into it um and i got really hooked on that because i loved the way this thing sounded so my wife and i um wrote our own books for graphic audio um it's this book series called playing gods and it's uh if i had to describe it it's dragon ball z meets game of thrones i work in it now so i've i'm not really invested in the financial success of this book at all i just wanted it to be the best story and best book i could be and to share it with people and the people that like it love it um it's not something i could ever make money on but i would rather have 10 people go holy crap this is amazing than you know a hundred thousand people go yeah it's good yeah and that attention to detail and that love for the little things goes back to having the time to work on snakes on a plane. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It is crazy how one movie or one event, and this is something else we talk about on the show every all the time, is how one movie can just have this spiderweb effect uh, on on people. And uh, even, even the silliest movie can have yeah. uh, the craziest consequences. So... Uh, but that's uh, that's so great. And, you know, that's really what this show is about. It's not just about movies, but it's about how they touch our lives and how they affect us. And uh, Snakes on a Plane may seem silly, but, you know, just talking to you in its own <laughs> small way, it kind of puts you on a path. It it really changed it. And it was just it was a ride that nobody could prepare you for or tell you this is what's going to happen. It was hold on to your ass. And then it just all over the you just up down left right you know we didn't know what was going on i was getting calls from advertising agencies i'm like what business do i have doing that <laughs> well I, I mean that was kind of the next generation though web web creators now are the biggest advertisers out there so it was the yeah. very early edge of what was to come I mean, you look at you look at Twitter and you look at like Microsoft going, "Hey, buddy, how's it going? Like, what's your, you know, here's a smiley face. What do you, what do you like about this?" And it's like, shut up, Dad. I'm just trying to use the internet. <laughs> hey, you know, some things never change, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Chris, if people want to check out uh, the audiobook that you that you're producing and that you've been working on, uh, where can they find it? You can go to playinggods.net. P l a y i n g gods.net that's awesome chris thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience with this silly silly movie thank you for having me that was awesome thanks so much to chris rowan for joining me on the show that was a great conversation and it's always fun to find these perspectives from people that were not just directly involved in the movie but were part of the pop culture moment of something like snakes on a plane which is something that you don't really see much 
Fueled by months of internet hype, the hysteria for snakes on a plane was hitting a peak in the summer of 2006. And there's something I discovered when I was researching the movie. When people talk about the story of Comic-Con, which is the annual San Diego gathering that started as a fairly medium-sized comic book convention, but is now one of the biggest Hollywood marketing extravaganzas of the year, you'll usually hear about Iron Man debuting its first footage, or when Twilight showed up. But Snakes on a Plane was actually one of the first films that took the Hall H experience, which is the biggest exhibition hall at Comic-Con, and turned it into what you see today. Do you think those those snakes deserve to die? Hell yeah! Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell! Sadly, despite all of the internet buzz, Snakes on a Plane learned that internet hype doesn't exactly translate to box office dollars, and it's a lesson that would be learned by a lot of different movies over the years, including Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World just a few years later. The film earned just $62 million worldwide on a $33 million budget, proving that just because people are talking about your movie on the internet, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to go see it, which is something that Chris Rowan addressed as we were talking about the audio trailer for the movie. I think a lot of the people that that just that are super on the creativity uh, and um, just really spur on uh, doing their own thing and just kind of latching on to this really funny idea of a movie called Snakes on a Plane were there for the spoof and not so much the actual movie. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of fun to to look at it on your phone and go, ha ha, you know, and keep moving as opposed to, you know, taking a, a, a day out of your evening to, to go watch it when, you know, you, you, if you're looking for that campy parody stuff, you, you know, and you go and you see it online, you kind of got it, you know? Yeah. Ultimately, Snakes on a Plane may have been more famous for what happened before the movie came out than what happened after the movie came out. But it was quite a moment. I very much remember tracking this movie and being hyped up for the film. I did actually go see it in a theater on opening weekend with a bunch of friends in Los Angeles. And it was what I like to call a flask movie. Now, I certainly don't endorse this behavior. And I'm not openly admitting that my friends and I may have snuck a flask of something into the film and filled our theater cups with it as we were watching the film and cackling away, but I'm not going to say we didn't do that either. For fans, bloggers, and Samuel L. Jackson, Snakes on a Plane truly was a singular moment in time, best summarized by the man himself, Sam Jackson. It was a joy for me to be able to do something like this because I've wanted to do something like this for so long, and uh, to be able to be on a motherfucking plane with all (laughs) those motherfucking snakes was just a motherfucker of an experience <laughs> that wouldn't have happened without you motherfuckers. As always, I like to talk about not just the movie, but my copy of the movie, what I actually am pulling off the shelf every week. And in addition to the movie itself, there are actually quite a few special features on this disc, including one about the making of the film that includes a pretty interesting look at how they built the airplane set for the movie, which was all in hydraulic gimbals that allowed for maximum actual turbulence in the film. We also get a feature about the real snakes in the movie and their handler, Jules Sylvester, who is well known as one of the foremost Hollywood snake wranglers. The correct way to hold a snake, basically, if it's venomous, hold its head. 
If it's non-venomous, hold its bloody head. Fittingly, there's also a special feature committed just to some of the people that created online material about Snakes on a Plane before it was released, many of whom were invited to the movie's red carpet premiere when the movie came out. When I started, you certainly didn't imagine you'd be here on the red carpet. I kind of thought that was my goal, but I didn't really envision it being like this. There's also a featurette on the making of the Cobra Starship music video at the end of the movie. That song, by the way, is way more catchy than it has any right being. So And there is great explanation, and I love hearing this, from the musicians themselves explaining the very complex and deep meaning behind the song that they wrote for a movie about snakes on an airplane. Snakes on a plane is more of a metaphor for how uh, slimy and, and, and creepy and venomous this music industry can be. We're using it more as like a metaphor for like uh, actual people on planes that, that, that have snake-like qualities. You also get a gag reel, extended and deleted scenes, and a commentary track from the film's director, some of the producers, the VFX supervisor, and of course, Samuel L. Jackson himself. And this is one of the more interesting commentaries I've listened to. First of all, there's a very long and protracted story about how they obtained the fake penis used in the snake biting the urinating man scene that goes on about three times as long as it needs to. But there is also a killer joke from Samuel L. Jackson referencing Deep Blue Sea. Now you can stand there and be the panicked, angry mob and blame him, me, and the government for getting you into this. But if you want to survive tonight, you need to save your energy and start working together. Last yeah. time I made a speech like this, a shark jumped up out of water and killed my ass. <laughs> yeah. And that wraps up our look at Snakes on a Plane. Next week, we're going to wrap up Bad Movie Month with perhaps the ultimate bad movie in Hollywood right now, Tommy Wiseau's The Room. But we're not just looking at The Room, we're also going to look at its star-studded Hollywood making of film, The Disaster Artist. I'm really excited to dive into this. This is a movie that I happened to live in Los Angeles at the right time. I saw The Room during that original run before it was kind of the cult hit that everybody knew. And I'm super excited to both revisit that film and talk about the making of that movie which then became its own movie so join us next week as we wrap up bad movie month with a double shot of the room and the disaster artist again if you're watching us on the schmodown entertainment network we'd love to have you as an audio subscriber on apple stitcher spotify wherever you like to get your audio podcasts and if you're listening to us and you want to check out the video please check us out on the schmodown entertainment network i'll be back next week to wrap up bad movie month but until then it's time to go back on the show See you next time.